This episode is with my great friend, Jordan Khrushchev from Core Excellence. Since completing his master's in physiotherapy at the University of Montreal, Jordan has always been fascinated by human performance and health. He occupies multiple roles, including his work as a performance physiotherapist with Bobsleigh Canada Skeleton and a physiotherapist at the Core Excellence Centre. Jordan specializes in return to play as well as injury management and movement optimization with a particular emphasis on speed and power sports. As a lifelong student, he focused on learning a variety of approaches and models and learning from experts in the field to improve his understanding and care of the athletes he collaborates with. On this episode, Jordan and I discuss Jordan's influences and the evolution of his training and rehab model. Jordan also shares a case study with a youth sprint athlete that he's currently working with. Guys, this was a great discussion with Jordan, and I hope you really enjoy it. Okay, Jordan, it is about time that we've done a podcast. We I had you on back in 2017 with Jazz. Yeah. We were down for a visit that time at Altus when they were still at Exos. But I've never actually done one where it's just been me and you. So technically this is our first day. It is. Zoom day. It's, uh, yeah. It's uh I don't know. I, I have a lot of different emotions about that. Well, obviously, I, I I love talking to you, uh, and it's it's funny, you know, in your question about influences. I mean, you're part of them, and at the same time, I feel like with the people that you've interviewed, you know, like there's I, I've looked up to so many of these people, so it's kind of weird to have this conversation here today. Um, I, I don't know since when I've been following your podcast. When did you start it, Robbie? Uh, the first episode. It's literally like this month too it was the start of this month november 2011 my first episode was with patrick ward back when i hadn't a clue what i was doing like do you know how i recorded that i literally recorded that by putting a dictaphone up to like my laptop speaker like I, I did that for like so long as well that's why like if you go back and listen like probably the first like 100 episodes they were just dreadful because i didn't really understand like internal recording and all that like but then i eventually figured out only took 100 episodes but yeah uh what do we know 20 12 years yeah 12 years since the first episode that's awesome man yeah congrats thanks appreciate that yeah so uh i think you're a hidden gem um and uh, you know I've, i've said this previously to you before anytime we've Hung out one other. You're probably too humble for your own good sometimes. In that, I know I always feel like maybe you kind of second guess yourself, or you feel that you mightn't be uh, at a level where you see yourself as a peer to some other individuals. But to me, definitely you are, as I said, just there a hidden gem. So I just want to, for you, for the listeners, obviously background. I actually don't know why you became a physio, so I'm actually interested to hear actually that backstory too. So what got you into phys, you know, because it is physiotherapy in Canada, isn't it? It's known as physiotherapy. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. we're obviously in America, it's physical, but over here in you in Europe, it's known as physio as well. So what drove you to physiotherapy and then obviously into more the strength and conditioning world slash physical preparation slash elite performance. Um, let's start there and then really want to get into your overall performance philosophy how that's evolved since you first got into this whole profession yeah well i have um i don't know it's different in a way and maybe similar in others to a lot of other professionals uh i i, I didn't uh like i, I wasn't a a very competitive athlete 
Um, I, I've always played sports. I played basketball um, in high school and um, basically up until university, which um, uh, here in Quebec is, is called CJEP. But everyone laughs at me when I tell them I played basketball because I'm relatively short. Um, we weren't the best basketball team, uh, but so so I've always been active. Uh, but but it was it didn't come from there. Like I picked up on all of these things quite late. Um, I had an interest for just natural sciences, health sciences, and 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 all of that. And then I have a lot of family that are actually all my grandparents were doctors in Bulgaria. Um, and so I kind of had an interest for that. My brother is a, is a surgeon. And uh, initially, that's kind of what I was trending towards. And uh, uh, so getting into university, I applied into a few different programs. I wasn't too sure what to apply in uh, with the the way that things work here. I had pretty good grades, but not good enough in my mind to apply directly into med school. So I, I went into physio. And um, and I would say like that, that's kind of my, my initial going back to like the influences that you were mentioning. I had two colleagues. Uh, in physio school. So uh, Kevin Arcelon and Dominique Labelle, who were both um, big into training. And uh, one of them used to wrestle, the other one just like to train and like do parkour and stuff. So they introduced me to teenage gym. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so I, I always put it this way, like what kept me into physio is actually uh, training, strength, conditioning, movement. Uh, was it not for that? I don't think I would have stayed. Uh, I probably would have switched over to med center. And and I did um, I did kind of go through part of the process of, of applying into med school. But once I was, the way I always say it is, as I went in physio, so through my bachelor's and my master's, my interest for medicine went down. And, and not so much my interest. I have like a, a little bit like you're curious about all these things, uh, but it was more the uh, realistic interest in the sense of like, if I go into medicine, like what will I do? Like what, what, what will I what do I want to do? I, I want to intervene, um, but I don't want to be a surgeon. So if I want to intervene, well, I, I have this scope already with physio and, and physios in, in Canada and in Quebec, we have a pretty large, I, I'd say like a pretty large space. We have a good order. We have a good like scope of practice, which is quite wide. And so I was thinking to myself, well, I have a lot more liberty doing that. And I have all these different tools that I can kind of um, use and, and, and apply. And so, um, yeah, that, that's why I stayed because I, I looked at training and I told myself the training is prevention. Um, I have time with people in physio and, and even, um, in, in a regular practice, my, my practice isn't quite regular now, but even in a regular practice, we have more time than what a physician would have with, with someone. And we have a uh, first line. So basically people come to us directly, uh, which means that sometimes we also have to have this kind of dispatching, uh, role. So, I mean, someone can walk off the street and come see me um, and maybe it's absolutely not me that you need to see. So um, I kind of like that. Uh, and I think I've always had a bit of this like generalist perspective. Um, and that's also a thing that I liked. So that's kind of what led me to stay in physio. Yeah. That's the, the gist of it. Yeah. It was uh... <laughs> just for the listeners, I, I I turned my mic off just to knock any background noise from my end. But when Jordan said teenage, I laughed as well because this is like so many of us like just that was like the website that kind of like sucked us in. Like I, whenever I think teenage, I just like Eric Cressy, Mike Robertson. It's just like Christian Thibodeau. It's like I was re- like like circa two thousand seven, eight, nine. Yeah, that was definitely a big part of my formation as well. But um, 
I so I I get I get where physio came from in terms of you know he came from family physicians, but what what like when you were sort of leaving high school, was it sort of yeah I'm gonna go into something medical anyway, and it was either gonna be medicine or physio, but what like there was there an incident like when you were a teenager that like you got injured metaphysio and said mm, physio seems to be a thing, or was it just because it was medicine, but then I just kind of veered towards physio because sort of the training aspect put me towards that way as well. It, it, it was, it was, uh, you know, it was kind of like an error in a way or not, not an error, but, um, so I did have some injuries like sprained ankles and stuff like that. Like most, um, I, I didn't have anything severe when I was playing basketball and in my high school. And, um, like thinking back, I think it was decently physical or had like decent physical qualities. I wasn't like super strong or anything like that, but I think that generally speaking, like if, if I look back without having done any, any, I didn't do any strength and conditioning. Like we had one coach, I think, and it would have been like eighth grade that made us do a little bit of like plyo circuits and stuff like that. Uh, but other than that, like not, not much. And, and so I've, I've had a bunch of sprained ankles, but nothing else really. And I had one pretty bad sprain that I ended up going to a physio, but like I guess a mix of circumstances like I wasn't I, we were competitive but I wasn't that competitive um also like you know obviously like physio physio here is uh you, you could you could go into public sector but if you want to go into public sector like for an ankle sprain you would never be seen uh for most other things it takes forever uh, unless it's like very very like maybe post-operative or something like that so also there was, I think, a financial aspect for my parents too. Uh, my parents were divorced like forever, right? So I, I think there was also a bit of that that led me to maybe not, I, I did some physio, but I didn't do a lot. Um, and which was fine. Like, I don't think I have any big like sequelae from that, but um, that I don't think that that's what really made me want to go into it. I don't think that I was particularly, not that I wasn't impressed, but it's not as if like it left the lasting memory of what I did with that physio. So it was more of like, a, okay, well, I'd like to go into med school. What are things that I can do that have, um, like, for instance, I had applied in pharmacology. Uh, I mainly applied in pharmacology because my mom wanted me to. I ended up not going, and that kind of caused a whole, like, dispute because I was accepted in one of the schools. But I was like, I don't care about pharmacology. Well, again, at that time, I didn't care about it. Now I have interest, but I still wouldn't go into it. Um, so... It was one of those things where I said, well, physio seems to be like interesting, possibly applicable once I get into med school, let's say. Um, and then I, yeah, then I got in and I kind of first year I was still like, okay, I want to go into med school. Uh, and then literally with every single year afterwards, it, it kind of dwindled down. And um, yeah, I, I think like the program that I was in generally in, in Quebec, there's a very big manual therapy emphasis in physio school um which is what it is like I, I think the the exercise and the movement piece is definitely uh under under taught and underappreciated uh and and that's why like I, I liked those things but then everything else that I was reading I was reading so much stuff you know and I was reading um I remember starting to read like Charlie Weingroff uh like his blogs and all that and um and then we'll get to that but then I, I met Michael uh, Michael Wu, who was a huge influence, still is, and then just kind of started to exchange with him. And, and so over time, I was like, 
and, and that's kind of maybe the first part of my model too. Like I was like, ah, oh, fuck manual therapy. Like that actually sucks. Right. Like, um, that, and, and that was kind of maybe my initial, even though I've always done manual therapy, I had like a phase during which I was like, no, no, we just have to get people to move, which was quite early on in my, in my career. But yeah, so, so that's kind of how it went. Like it wasn't, I didn't go into physio. Um, it was kind of like an educated guess of like, oh yeah, that seems to be something cool or something maybe useful. Uh, but initially it wasn't with the thought of staying. Um, and were you always like, when did you kind of get into training? Cause I know you say you play basketball, but when did you kind of start doing more sort of formalized S and C if you want to call it, was that sort of, as you got into physio, you started to kind of have more structured training and then you're like, Oh, there's this training piece that I can like put alongside this physio piece. So it was kind of almost serendipity in a way. Like, yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, so nation, uh, and that, that was kind of the first like things that I started to learn. And it's always, I've always found that interesting too, because most people, when they get into training, you kind of have these stories about people doing like, you know, having like the sand weights and like doing like the, um, you know, Arnold routines and whatnot. My first program was five, three, one by, by Jim Wendler. Like that was the, and it was just because I didn't, I didn't like, I wasn't, and it's funny, you know, my, my, my dad has always been very active. Like I have a picture of him back in Bulgaria. I think he's actually with my brother and he's just sitting on the floor with like a Kind of like a you know one of these like old barbells on his back and my brother's like between his legs so my, my dad wasn't big into weightlifting but he's always been very big in endurance sports so we've always done a lot of like cycling cross-country skiing things like that um but never any like i guess like some push-ups and stuff like that you know like nothing else really and then when i started to read on teenation and and kind of um and i, th I think it was don who had given me the the, the spreadsheet for 531 and, and that's also why, like, to this day, my bench sucks because, you know, my overhead press is significant. Like, it's not better than my bench, but it's, like, much higher than it should be compared to my bench. But, yeah, so I started with 531. Then it was, like, pressy and maximum strength. Um, Like, th that was kind of the initial. And then I think I've gone through all of his programs. Uh, there was show and go. Um, There's another one, but I don't think I, made, I did that one. So it was kind of like, that was kind of my training influence. It was really, it was really when I started university, uh, I started to have access to the gym at University of Montreal, and I would go train with Kevin and, and Dom. And then, uh, um, yeah, so that, that's kind of how it started. So very much like powerlifting influenced initially. Um, and that definitely also tainted the initial ways that I was training people because I was working at in a gym here that's where i'm with michael and also with my uh when i started practice with my patients it was very much like functional training like my boil stuff and um you know poo-pooing machines a lot um initially as well kind of that i think that's kind of a natural progression of things you know um so, so that's when i started and, and then obviously like there was um like as you said robertson uh, like dean somerset gentle core like all of these guys ben bruno um, John Berardi and Precision Nutrition. So I started to read up like on nutrition a lot as well. Um, I, I remember there was, at that time I would I would basically eat my breakfast and uh, and I always remember uh, I think it was Nate Green was that his name? He was like writing about this and I just remember because he was doing this thing about like I would eat four eggs and eat and drink like green tea and that was like my thing and I think I picked that up from him. <laughs> so, sounds like Nate Green. Yeah. Uh, so I would just read blogs. Like I had my, my uh, RSS feed thing. It would just like, you know, update all the time. And I would just like sit down eat my breakfast and like read blogs. So yeah, that's when I started. Yeah. It sounds similar to my evolution as well. And I can remember like when Breck and Treyers first came on the scene, like yeah. 2009, I actually, th this is actually a really funny story. So when I interned at Boyles in 2009, 
uh, Mike had just met Contreras at like one of the perform betters and like uh, I think it was the one out in Long Beach I think Long Beach used to be the third and last one back in those days and uh, I think they do, they do four now because I think Florida is a part of it now but so back in the day it used to be just Rhode Island Chicago and Long Beach Long Beach used to be the the, the last one it used to be, and it used to be like near the end of August so my internship started in September and when Mike came back he was like this guy met me and he was a weirdo he kept coming to me talking about like glute bridges and the glutes and he gave me this book on like that he wrote about glue training and so he just like he didn't know who brett was so funny like looking back on it now because like that was brett and <laughs> um, but then like brett explode on the scene like j- just during the time i happened to be interning at boils and like i was on strengthcoach.com that time and back then you had like you had charlie on it you had like joe sansalone you had joe bonia you had bob barcello like there was fucking who else was low Patrick Ward was consistent. Dave Tanny, Joel James was on to a bit too. So you got these great contributors to it. And Brett, I remember just he was so prolific on that form. And but his blog at that time too, he was literally pumping out so much um material on his blog at the time. It was unbelievable. Like and I just remember at that time constantly reading him too, and then obviously reading eric and mike robertson stuff at the time obviously boils stuff so yeah it's very very similar towards uh in my um journey toward in terms right towards my journey is very similar towards the with my journey is very similar with your journey as well that's what i'm trying to say but uh so you you finish physio school um so take us from there and just timeline jordan w- when did you graduate what time are we talking here 2011-12 i started practice uh 10 years and two months ago, I started, I graduated from my master's. Uh, so basically about a bit more than 10 years, I graduated uh, from physio. Okay, I started so, to work in training about 12 years ago. All right. So take us from, from that point onward. So you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're out in the industry now and, you know, so where is the headspace at? What kind of, where are you and your, your evolution thought process? Cause you touched on some things there mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, functional training, poo-poo machines. And yeah. know, I think again, we go through all these sort of, you know, peaks and troughs of where our mindset is in certain things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I find like exactly like you said, I find like it's been like bigger uh, peaks and valleys and, and they kind of stabilize over time, but they definitely continue. And I think part of that is also a, a character trait of mine. But um, yeah, so, so um, once I graduated, so I was working in the gym where, again, I was working with Michael at that time. And I was I started to work in a regular practice uh, physio here. So um I mean, here, basically, the, the traditional model of clinics is relatively, you know, big volume clinics, half hour sessions, um, an hour assessment, but then half hour treatments and um, very manual therapy based. When we talk about manual therapy here, it's mostly like more joints uh, around joint stuff. Uh, the soft tissue stuff came a little bit more recently and the myofascial stuff as well. But like the initial um, orthopedic manual therapy, as they would call it here, is, is very much like joint based. So um, that was a practice that I was in. And initially, the courses that I had taken, I had dabbled into NKT, neurokinetic therapy. Now, it, it's a funny thing because I was very, very involved into it, but I never really used it that much. It never really clicked for me. And I have very good friends who did and in and, and Toronto that, that use it. And, and I met a lot of great people that way too. But it's just funny because, you know, I went to level one, level two. I was helping a friend teach level one. So like, I understood it, but... It just never made sense to me. Like I think there was um, like a, a piece that wasn't fitting, and I couldn't. I I, I couldn't buy it. Uh, are you familiar with it? 
Yeah, no, Emma, um, that actually was quite big over here too in in Ireland, UK, and Europe. Yeah, because he's your man, David Weinstock. Is it? Is that his yeah. Name? yeah, he yeah. he ran quite a few courses, and I actually had a good friend of mine. He's from Northern Ireland, and and the, the N, NTK were running their seminars in Dublin, and he came down and stayed with me while he was doing it. And I have one or two very good friends who went through it and would speak fairly highly of it. Like they, they like they weren't zealous. They weren't like just that. That you know, the these guys were very. Um, they were like broad thinkers like th- these guys would have done like sfma and pri and you know dns like they would they would have been those kind of types of clinicians you know they would have looked at yeah. the sort of a real holistic global model but they spoke re- reasonably highly of it like they would say that they would integrate elements of that into their practice too yeah mm-hmm. yeah so, so for, for me it was a bit similar so i had like you know the, the sfma and fms thing that that mainly came from uh from mike initially uh he was he was big into fms and so I was kind of reading movement and looking at everything from Greg Cook. And, um, but, but yeah, but, but the actual like NTT approach, I don't know, it like, it, 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 for me, it didn't work. And again, I think part of it was I couldn't rationalize, like, what, what are we actually doing here? Like, what are we doing when we're testing this thing? Like, sure, like, okay, maybe there's a result, but like, it, it, if, it, if I can't, if it doesn't click, and that's kind of a, a thing that, that is common in throughout the years that stayed the same, if it doesn't make sense in a, like, I guess, mechanistic standpoint, or uh, I can't understand it, I just can't, I don't use it. Um, so that was kind of an initial thing, but I met a lot of people through it. I eventually did FRC. Uh, I think it was actually about 10 years ago that I did FRC, which is nuts, because it's like exploded since in a you know, it's, it's been crazy. So that was also a pretty big influence initially uh, on me. So I was practicing in that clinic, working at the gym, and then my practice was kind of a blend of things. I had uh, negotiated with the owner of the, of the clinic where I was working to get like some heavier kettlebells, install like a chin bar with the TRX, you know, things like that. So there was a big like... You're like slowly turned it into a gym, like maybe Ooh. we can get a barbell, <laughs> maybe we can get some weights, maybe we should start doing some athletic training. Funnily enough, when we, uh, we, we had a, I'd say we had probably the best, like big box clinic, small gym, because you know, the gym was like, well, maybe a bit bigger than this room I'm in here, but like not very big, but we had like some heavier weights and like, and, and when I, before I left, I actually had him install, uh, a rack and like an actual, like proper, like, you know, um, cable, uh, machine. And cause we had like this old thing, probably from like the thirties, um, so, and it's funny because he was actually telling me like, oh, but we just bought a rack. We just bought this. I'm like, yeah, but I, I scanned everyone's opinion. Obviously I had an influence on the younger physios because I was, so I influenced them in, in saying that they wanted a rack too. Um, but, but yeah, so, so that was very much like I'd spend some time on the, you know, on the plinth with my patients. I'd bring them in the gym, get them moving. Um, th- that was very much the approach initially. And then with FRC, I started to do a little bit more, maybe like vocal, more locally um, addressed things. Right. So his, concept of like well basically it's mechanical transduction right but so applying that in terms of like activities they're a bit more focused um and i was doing a little bit more like soft tissue work as well than what was maybe typical from like a a regular physio perspective so like some art type stuff i never took art uh but i you know i've, I've obviously picked up on things i had like a friend of mine had the dvds which are very funny to see like you know by like i don't know if you've ever seen them there's like this fireplace and he's just like doing the treatments on this dude. It's, it's very, yeah. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen him. Is it not, is it not like a really good looking woman in that by the fireplace? I, that, that, 
probably. I, I honestly don't, don't remember. I just well, remember the whole li- vibe. Was listen, if, you, if, if you've ever gone through any Gary Gray's original DVDs, I don't think anyone can surprise you. Like, one of his DVDs opens up with him riding in on a stallion, and he's like, the good Lord has given us this day. And it's like it's like, it's like like a DVD on, like, elbow pain. It's like, what? Like, wh- wh- where did this even come from? So anything after that wasn't a shock, to be honest. Um. Yeah, uh, so, so initially I had all of these like physical prep influences and athletic development influences, and that was definitely not what I was working with, you know. Um, so so like looking at um, so so it's funny you mentioned Patrick Ward, and, and that was uh, there was strength in motion. If you remember that, so it was Charlie, Patrick, and Joel, I think. Yeah, yeah, I had that. those. Yeah, yeah, that was a great presentation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and so like the whole concept of like physiological buffer zone for me has always been like a thing that I that I use maybe in an adapted way to this day um i've I've picked up a lot of things from patrick i I remember actually one of my i was interning and um i I started to do like i had this uh military guy who had torn his achilles had been post-op and and my uh, supervisor clinic supervisor made me uh work through his calf and my my hands were hurting like you know like to get the end of the week and i sent a message to patrick because i knew he was a massage therapist and i was like what like my hands really hurting like do you have any any advice any suggestions and he just wrote like who taught you body mechanics? And I was like, uh, I don't, I don't know. And then he like sent me like this resource on like, you know, deep tissue massage. He was like, you need to like fix your shit, right? And so, uh, but but physiological buffer zone. Um, and and also another thing actually that that, that was quite influential was during my studies, um, I watched a TED talk by Laura Mosley on uh, pain. And uh, I always say like our, our pain class at University of Montreal, and it was the same at McGill. They were very like basic science heavy. Uh, they weren't very, um, I don't think they were very good for like physios that are, they don't really see why this applies. Uh, they see this as a very niche clientele, which it isn't. But so, so like talking just about like, you know, spinal tracts and stuff like that, just it, it's, I, it, it, it wasn't very applicable. And so I, I listened to this talk by Laura and I was like, this, this painting is really, really interesting. And one of my colleagues, when I started that, uh, at the clinic where I was working, his name is Arthur Wisniewski, who he just finished his PhD on pain. And so he was also very interested in that. And so we kind of started to like, you know, learn together. We went to learn from David Butler uh, in Boston for explain pain. So like that was also a heavy influence. And initially a little bit like anything, it was very like blunt. Um, so we would just educate everyone on pain. We would give them the mouth analogy and the orchestra analogy and all these things. And that's kind of gotten, I think, a lot more targeted over time. But that to me and then like the physiological buffer zone for me like all these concepts just kind of fit together and i think that that's the things that i use the most and what i always seek is kind of this like what is the overlap what are the things that are the same principle like it's just the same thing applied differently right um and i think that that's always where my head goes so with that i I eventually got a little bit more interested uh through michael as well and with michael's help or assistance uh, you know, we went to BSMPG together uh, with Art Horn was hosting, which was this phenomenal, um, where, you know, Sapolsky was there, Igor Mujica was there, uh, Fergus Connolly was there, Al Green was there. It was just like a bunch of people that also, some of them were very mainstream, some of them were not so mainstream. So, you know, Fergus is like, is, 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 a, is a pretty big deal now, but it was cool to see him, like, I guess before that, and just to hear some of those thoughts. So some of this, like, integration of different things. Um, and so, so that really spoke to me too, as like a physio who had interest in training and kind of, I saw these things as one big whole, um, 
And, and that's also like around these initial periods of, you know, my career, I would listen to a lot of podcasts and I, and I had found your podcast. I forget how I initially started to listen to, um, to you, but I just remember I was like, you were in the beginning of these, like, I think more long, slightly more long form and more like in-depth podcasts, I find. Um, cause like back then there was like the fit cast and, you know, functional strength coach and like all these things that were a little bit more, um, more superficial, I find you had like deeper conversations with people. So I, uh, so like James Smith, for instance, for me was also a big, a big influence through you. And again, he had kind of the same message, right? I always remember depth of strength conditioning. It's like, oh shit, he just said that. But uh, just so again, kind of just integrating things together. So um, th th that's kind of what I slowly went towards. Um, and I think that that kind of led me to Stu's blog through Mike. Stuart McMillan. And again, he had like a bunch of very influential pieces. Uh, one of them fits very well with that conversation was um, standing on the shoulders of giants. And he was just kind of talking about like this kind of evolution and this building on top of one, one thing on top of the other, right on top of previous knowledge and mentors. And, um, and so eventually we went down to World Athletic Center, which was, um, um, well, that, that was before Altus, right? Uh, and uh, we went there. I went with Michael. Um, he was doing the ACP. I was doing the performance therapy program. And uh, at the same time, this is the same way my mind works. I'm sorry for being all over, slightly all over the place. I had started to be interested in PRI. That's how I met the people that I work with now, like the place where I work with now. So they were hosting the PRI courses. And, um, and again, a mix of pain and PRI interest, uh, and then also all the blog stuff, I had found Zach. And Zach Couples, he would have book reviews and course reviews, and he had reviewing Explain Pain, and he had a review of Myokin from PRI, and he had a blog called uh, PRI and uh, and Pain Science, Yes We Can, or something like that. And, and so he had a lot of interesting thoughts too that kind of fit very much with mine in terms of uh, the end of pain, looking at uh, looking at threat, looking at things as a system instead of looking at just pain, right? So like looking at, at, at we always say like, you know, pain is, is associated to perceived threat or perceived danger. So, um, okay, so we can just look at the threat and that brings us to stress. And like, so all these things again are the same. I started to talk with Zach. So I started to Zoom with Zach probably, probably like eight years ago, maybe nine years ago. Like we, we started to just like, I was like, hey, can I learn from you? Like, um, and and he was in Phoenix at that time. So the first time we went to the WAC, um, because it was the ACP week, I actually spent a few days with Zach in the beginning of the week. Um, and then I went to the ACP uh, for the last few days. And then I did the, the performance therapy program. And um, and so, so that was very, very influential for me. Uh, PRI was one of those things that kind of made sense, but kind of didn't. I didn't know where to apply it, how to apply it. And I have a really hard time... Uh, drinking the kool-aid so to speak like i have a really hard time accepting something um so <laughs> i was like i don't i'm not too sure about this like i'm not i'm not ready to like get fully committed to this so uh, learning through zach seeing how he would apply it helped me a lot um and and at the same time i learned you know a bit more about track i was interested about running because i saw it like applied into any sphere really like either you your sport has running in it or you run for conditioning for your sport, like in your, in your physical prep, right? Whether it's running, sprinting, whatever. Um, 
still to that day, I wasn't working with a lot of track actually. So I kind of came back. I was like, oh, cool performance therapy. Uh, I would kind of try to apply some of those concepts with people that I would work with, but it was very like superficial. And um, so, so, so that was kind of like a, a pretty big influence as well. I mean, both like Zach and kind of the Altis way, right? I learned a little bit more, uh, you know, some of the joint pumping stuff. Uh, so uh, Jerry Ramajita was there, right? So he was one of the the main teachers, and so learning a bit of his model of like what to look at and then the joint pumping by Yves And then he also went through the Yeldoas, uh, which I, I dabbled in a little bit, but, and um, so just kind of added some different tools and a little bit more reflection to what I was doing. And that led us to sign up for the internship two years after. So that's now six years ago that we were at Altus. It's almost seven. It's going to be seven. It's going to be almost seven. Yeah, right? it's going yeah, to be seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Mike found the internship. You know, we had been about two years before to Altus for the PTP and ACP. And uh, it was just a timing that worked. I don't know if I could have done that at any other time of my life. Uh, and it just, you know, it's hard while you're working. It's also Phoenix is literally like almost kind of at the opposite end of the you know, North America from us. Um, and uh, uh, my, well, she wasn't my wife at the time, but Claire was very, uh, I mean, without her, that wouldn't have happened for sure uh, because she kind of made it possible for me to go, right? And then, so we decided to go, I'm interning in, in therapy, Mike is interning in strength conditioning. And um, so, yes, yeah, so we were there for three months, right? So I was under jazz uh, mainly who's been a huge influence, who I'd actually initially met. I initially met Jazz. So that would have been like 11 years ago now at a Charlie Weingroff conference in Toronto. Uh, like he had done a workshop, a two-day workshop, and Jazz was there. And I just remember like, he was like, you know how Jazz is, like cross-armed and like, you know, just looking at people from afar. And... Um, in disgust. Yes, exactly. In... in, in in judgment of what they're doing um he's laughing but, right now as he listens to this hi jazz <laughs> uh yeah so so yeah and jazz jazz is just great he's such a good good person um such a great guy but yeah so so, so i was interning with him and that, that was a pretty that was a very um important period i think both because i'd already been practicing for a number of years so I I was able to do stuff, which I think was was cool. But at the same time, uh, I also uh, I, I was very and I still am like, I feel like I still don't know much. I knew even less then, but it allowed me time to like, you know, we would have decently long days, but we would go to the track, go to the gym, treat, train. And then it was like, we got nothing. We don't have any chores like you know, we're, we're far from home. We just have to like cleaner clothing, like, you know, make food. So then I would do a lot of reading and, and other things like that too. And obviously that's when, that's when I met you, um, met Federico, uh, from Barcelona, who's a sprint coach, Peniotis, who's from Greece, works with volleyball now. But so, the, so that whole, like we had, a, I feel like a really good group of very keen individuals. Uh, like we wanted to learn we wanted to help, um, and uh 
so yeah, so 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 that that was that was a very big influence for me in terms of like just seeing how people would do things, and I think I'm pretty good at um, uh, kind of like absorbing from looking, like looking at what people do, and 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 kind of like I, I understand like what they're trying to do oftentimes because I can I understand like the principles behind it. So uh, I've always liked the Altis more uh, theoretical and uh, philosophical framework, and I think that that was also a nice way to kind of see okay, well, how does it actually apply? Because uh, I think that's sometimes maybe the tricky thing with some of the um, when, when we look at it more from like a principles and a global like, you know, principles and system standpoint, it's sometimes hard to see, like, what do you do day to day? So uh, th th that was very valuable to be able to interact with all the professionals that go through there. Right. Um, all the people that come for DACP, all like the friends of jazz that teach wherever and they're coming for a few days. And so they're like consulting on an athlete. Like I, I had, I, I remember, I think Brian Mann was there and I had like assessed him because he had like, so there was like all these like weird, like, uh, you know, people that you meet and things that you do that like, you know, you look up to these people, you, you like, you learn from them and then they're there and you're like, Oh shit. Okay. We can have a conversation. Um, I think what you uh, were very influential influential at that point uh, for for different reasons. I think one of them was um, everything with regards to like just having maybe a bit more of an open mind uh, with regards to a lot of things, like just just looking at what people bring up and like learning about it and not just dismissing it because it's it's weird or funky. You know, like I, I think that's something that I that I, I'm still working on, but that, that you kind of brought to me. Um, and also more concretely, everything with regards to like circadian health and circadian rhythms. And, and that was something that like, I knew it was important. And, and I had, you know, I had read the sleep by Nick Little, uh, Nick Little Hills and, but, but like, I think you brought up to me the secrets of sleep science, great courses on audible. Oh, you brought that up to me actually. So you got that somewhere else. Where did I get that from then? I don't know. I thought it was for me. Anyway, I just associate all this circadian stuff to you, uh, but 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 the, so so that course for me was was huge because I found that it was very uh, a lot of things that we talk about now in terms of sleep because now sleep is a sexy thing to talk about. Um, like if you if you think about the circadian like rhythm principles and secrets of sleep science, or like it, it just goes back to that, right? It always goes back to that. So so that to me was 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 quite an uh, an influential thing, and. Uh, Yes. Yeah, so, so just learning more from Jazz and from Dan and, and a bit more in person from Chidi. Uh, uh, what a great guy. Like Andreas, like all of these guys were just uh, top class. And so I think Jazz, what he brought to me was um, looking at things with a bit more precision and detail um, and also having, you know, obviously logic behind what we do. So I think we we sometimes tend to be a little bit more, even though we can argue how precise certain interventions are, still seeking to be precise. So I, I remember the first day I met Jazz in person, uh, or like officially, we, we got there a few days before our internship started. He had sat us down in that like first little like office in front of Exos. And uh, he knew I was like the next therapy intern. He's like, draw to break your plexus. And I was like, what the fuck and he's like here i'll help you and actually what he did is not help me but whatever he actually like kind of um like put me in a trap but anyway so obviously i didn't know how to draw it and then he was like until you learn to break a plexus you can't touch anyone's neck and i was like fuck and so and we can you know 
debate all we want. I think at the end of the day, looking at these things and just learning a little bit more in depth, like uh, all the anatomy that we don't learn as much with regards to like our, like vascular and neural uh, peripheral nerves was something I was interested in already. But then like learning, okay, where do they go from? Like, how can, how can we like relate these things again? How are they influencing each other? And uh, so, so that was very influential to me. And um, I, I think he had a good approach uh, where he was, you know, we were kind of playing around with things. Like I felt much more like a colleague to jazz than just like a, like a, underling while I was there uh which I think was cool like we would just shoot the shit we would talk about different ideas we'd try stuff out um and I think that was really really um influential so it, it was kind of cool and that's also uh one place where I saw a little bit more like uh needling be being done um like so so there were the people from McMaster who were there like who I think Jazz knew and um I wasn't doing any dry needling at that time but that was kind of one thing that I saw it then I was like oh, okay that's kind of that's kind of neat you know um, and I think the other thing that Stu talks a lot about, and I had picked up from, I think it was All Green at BSMPG, or maybe it was Fergus. I think it was All Green. He was talking about the Kinevin framework, right? So like basically yeah, talking yeah. about complexity. And then that kind of reminded me of a lot of things we talk about in pain science with regards to like emergent phenomena, which are like, again, a, you know, something that, that is greater than the sum of its parts. And so I was reading a lot, a lot on these things then. And, and obviously Stu would talk about it and Jazz would talk about it. And Dan is always talking about, you know, fractal patterns and all that shit. So um, it, it, it just kind of, uh, it tied certain things in together for me. So um, from that point on, um, I think I was a lot more comfortable with some of these interventions and also at like how to apply uh, a performance therapy. And for you, performance therapy is, you know, in physio, we'll talk a lot about looking at the uh, at the sporting movement, right? So if you come consult with me for hurling, you had an injury or I don't know, you have a shoulder injury, you know, like, okay, well, I want to see how you move, like what happened. And so I'll, we'll do that sometimes in clinic, but like, why not do it in the sporting environment? And especially with something like track, it's, and, and, and with short sprints or with more like speed and power events, like you have, so you have time in between reps. So like, you just get to see, I, I remember telling Michael after a few months while we were there, I was actually starting to see stuff, you know, from being with the same individual six days a week, like all day, right? You start to look at a Keen Haynes sprint and you're like, oh shit, like I, I can see some stuff. Like that, that, I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't think, I always thought that Dan was just talking shit, right? But like, he's been doing it for like how many years, right? I, I've been here for like three months. I'm finally starting to see something, but it requires practice and practice and practice. So once you have it in the, in the sporting environment, you can just do interventions that, it, it, which are with a slightly different goal, um, but but you just have you you see the movement right away, right? So so it just made a lot of sense to me, and I understand the worries that certain people have with regards to creating uh, dependency or things like that with passive interventions. But at the same time, I think a lot of that revolves back to education um, and just educating on what are we trying to achieve here. Uh, what are we not trying to achieve here? And also empowering the athletes so that they're able to do things by themselves. Uh, I never want someone to feel as if they can't do something because I'm not there, right? Uh, I've, I've had experiences like that uh, with through other therapists and and that that's just a terrible place to be. Uh, so uh, I, I think that, that that was something very useful for me to understand. And then I applied it in different places. I applied it a bit in clinic, um, so I started to work where I work now. So uh, I rent space out of a small gym um, called Core Excellence here. And um, 
And so, so I would just start to apply it there, right? I was in the gym. I would, you know, do some stuff. And we'll get to that a bit later. You know, you were asking me about some cases. But, um, you know, just applying some of these principles there. And uh, so I started definitely thanks to Altus, I would say. I um, I met uh, Fabrice Acoué, who's uh, now like an Athletics Canada coach. He used to coach at University Laval. He had come for the ACP in January. And I guess he wanted to learn about wickets. So uh, he was there for that. And then I had met uh, Morgan Alexander, who used to be, um, he was like a push coach for Bobsy Canada. He used to be like a brakeman. And then he was IST manager, I think, or something like that. And um, so I met him in that last week of while, while I was at Altis. And um, through those, um, well, events, like through meeting them, I down the line started to work with Bob Saint Skeleton. So in the beginning of last quad and also with Fabrice's uh, track group, which for those who don't know, the Quebec city is about two and a half, three hours away from Montreal. So it's kind of a weird thing. Like I would see them in competitions and things like that. So that's kind of what um, made me start to work a little bit more with those type of athletes. So with Bob say was mainly traveling for world cup races or for selection uh, camp and races, and then helping out with therapy there. And um, with track initially, it was very much like we could say performance therapy at competitions, and then it kind of evolved into a little bit more preseason and during, like kind of monitoring and, and assessing and doing interventions with them and as well as in competitions. So I, I'd say that that's kind of grown a lot since. So I've, um, I start to work with different you know, events and, and stuff like that. Uh, but it's something that I've, I've always been very interested in. I, I like the, I guess, those type of sports because it allows us to see maybe a little bit better a certain influence or there's there's a lot more constraints on it compared to if you look at curling or soccer or hockey, right, where there's a lot of different things. And I, I found those still very cool. I like to work with them, but it's just a different, um, I guess, the approach is kind of different with regards to those sports. So um, through that, I think we're almost done with the progression. Sorry, I didn't think it would be that long. Uh, uh, this is good. I, this is great. It's great. Um, in Western Canada, there's a lot of dry needling being done. It's uh, it's called gun IMS mostly. It's not the only approach, but it's like one of the OG approaches uh, that, again, how things kind of circle back. Uh, again, 11 years ago, when I when I first met Charlie in person, he was talking about about chat gun and about this approach of dry needling, which. They think he was calling the patriarch of of dry needling in North America or something like that. And um, so the, the athletes, Bobsy athletes, were very used to getting needling done. So after my first like few weeks with them, I had signed up for the course that we give here in Quebec, which is very much like trigger point dry needling. That's really what it revolves around. Um, and so I kind of added that to what I was doing. And then I just learned about different approaches a little bit more. Um, and, and now more recently, I've been teaching it for a few years. Uh, I, so I teach in the dry needling course and I did take the IMS course. So the, the, the gun course, which is more, um, um, nerve, like their assessment and their approach revolves more around the nervous system. And it has a little bit more of a global perspective, which I, I really, really like. Um, so I kind of added that, uh, you know, worked with, with the teams, uh, over the last quad, did a little bit of work with skeleton last year. I might continue a little bit, but I'm, I, I'm, I'm I guess I'm less interested in traveling as, as time goes with regards to, uh, um, and I also, I think I, I really like the longitudinal, um, 
care or management of someone as opposed to dropping in for like a week and intervening. Like that's fun and it's a different experience, different skill set, but that's not really what I like. Um, I, I like the, and again, it goes back to initially why I stayed in physical. I like the preparation. I like the optimization. I like that aspect more. Um, I had reached out to Derek Hansen. Um, I had met him. First time I saw him speak was at BSNPG as well. And then I had reached out to him a few years back because I wanted to learn a bit more about some of the EMS stuff he was doing. And Derek is another, like, he's kind of like a jazz in a way, you know, he's, he would be the person there, you know, just kind of staring at people and just like, what are they doing? You know, but then when you meet him, I just remember like, we, we did like a little zoom, we spoke about some stuff and then he was like, Oh, I'm going to my in-laws and, you know, uh, but maybe like what they're maybe like four hours away from Montreal, five hours away from Montreal. So uh, yeah, why don't you just pass by? I was like, uh, okay, like sure. So then I drove down <laughs> to where they where where they are, and I just like spent the day with him and like his family, <laughs> and, and we were just like talking about training and sprinting and Charlie Francis and all these different things. Um, and, and and so he's been also very influential. In the, he kind of brought things a different. A different way i think it was going into things in a very like com complex sometimes uh way and and derek's approach has a lot of complexity to it but i think he's boiled it down to very simple things and and so he kind of brought that maybe brought me back more towards some simplicity in some of that approach and um so so that was uh that was something that i found very useful and then after that, and we're getting towards towards the end again. We, um, I went to Bill's intensive. It was a second intensive that I went to. Well, with you again, and we met there, and and it was kind of funny because we didn't know we were we would both be there. Right, we just kind of met there. Uh, yeah, well, we, well, we didn't know we both applied. Like we knew beforehand we mm -hmm. were going, but we didn't both know that we were. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, it was great. That was a great few days. Yeah, so so that was interesting. You know, from from all the learning that I had been doing with Zach, um, Zach has been kind of like a constant through there. Um, I mean, I saw him start to develop his own approach, um, which obviously was very tied in with Bills as well, uh, because Zach is a student of Bills. Um, I kind of saw how that kind of veered off initially. It was very pure heavy and then kind of with their own things and then they kind of veered off in their own direction right and um so learning through that i was like well i'd like to see what what bill is doing right and um i think at the time my understanding was okay but not great so i definitely picked up a lot of things from the intensive uh but it's still something that i i'm kind of still wrapping my head around it you know, I understand the basics of the of the model. I think I understand them relatively well. But when we go more in depth into it, that's where I, I start to struggle. And that's where I feel like I need more understanding so that I can, going back to the same concept again, like if I can't rationalize it, if I can't really understand, like what are we doing, what's going on, I have a hard time applying it because I have a hard time reasoning it. So, but but Bill has definitely been a big influence over over the past few years, right? And and I, I loved his model, like the way that he would also and the format of how he teaches in terms of you know having us over talking about these things and and then having kind of the you know every two weeks calls. Like I, I just found that great. Um, I'm I'm far from understanding it, 
fully, uh, but I would say that it's still something that I that that is a pretty important piece of my model. Um, and I would say that that's kind of like a blend of like Zachisms and Billisms and uh, you know kind of like a, a mix of those concepts. Um, so yeah, so it's kind of like a mix of all these different things. Uh, in the past, more recently, I've been I've been trying to play around a little bit more with um, a bit more techie things. I think that in physio we have uh, a bit of a problem with objective testing, and I think that that's where it came from. So I, again, I'm I'm kind of still figuring that out. But with regards to, you know, I started to use some Moxie monitors a few years ago. Um, I've been using force plates for maybe like I don't know, like past less than a year. Uh, so I'm kind of like dabbling a bit more in those things, um, trying to see kind of where they fit. And I had questions that I had that I wanted them to answer, but I'm also kind of looking at where else can it fit, right? So like, what can I do with these things? And also what's logistically, you know, what makes sense? Um, so I don't know if I'm forgetting anyone. I think that that's kind of like the general progression of influences. Um, I guess another person that always that comes back very often would be Matt Jordan um, that I kind of initially met or learned about through uh, Altus and through Stu. And, you know, he was doing a lot of work with force plates and with uh, ACL athletes and uh, post-op ACL reconstruction. And uh, I've always kind of liked his approach uh, in terms of like how he would structure things and also some of the, so I, I started to learn from his stuff a while ago, but I didn't have plates. I was just kind of learning more about muscle physiology from him and different training elements and menu items, as uh, Dan would say. Um, and then kind of more recently, well, I actually got, you know, the plates. And so I kind of started to dabble in that a little bit more as well. Um, so he would, he would also be someone that I, I consider uh, a, an important influence. Um, yeah. So taking all that together, then, what is your model? So if I walk into core excellence and you're working with me, you know, take it from there. So it's, it's someone, let's say again, and you, you said, you, I don't know if you have a case study or whatever, but yeah, if you, maybe if, if there's a way of walking through that, like a hypothetical case or even one that maybe had to, yeah, when people come in, here's how it goes. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, so I think my, um, so initially what, what I always like to do, so, I was listening to your uh, to your interview with uh, with Joel um, recently, Joel Smith, and um, I, 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 I that's why I was I was kind of bringing up the uh, you know the hurling uh, uh, a lot because you were talking about hurling and so what I've been what I like to do I, I always tell people or especially athletes that I work with but even when I work with so so I do see a lot of like complex pain cases uh, over time. Um, and, and with individuals that I work with or athletes, I always tell them I work a lot off of information. Like I need, I need information. And I don't know if it's, I, I'm, I think I need a lot of like evidence to convince me of something or to decide on something as opposed to, uh, maybe sometimes someone will see like one video and be like, oh, okay. Like da, 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 da. Like this is what's going on. I definitely don't work that way. So what I'll usually always do, um, if I, if, especially if I start with a new sport, I'm going to try to like educate myself as much as possible beforehand as well. Um, even if like a lot of these things are similar. So let's say I start to work with, uh, um, with a hurdler uh, and also with a triple jumper recently. Well, I, I'm going to go and I'm going to try to find resources on that. One thing that I've been finding very useful was uh, the Altis coaching courses. Um, 
like I'm not I'm not trying to be a, a coach, but understanding the sport, understanding like what's going on through the person's head, uh, a bit more of like that mental aspect too, you know. Uh, uh, so let's say uh, the sort of work with a hurdler. I know about 100 meter hurdles, but uh, I was like, hey, you know what? I'm gonna I want to go see what Andreas has to say about that. Uh, and Andreas's course is, is super well made uh, too. So I went. I I'll go through that. I'll kind of look at. Um, what can I learn from the event, from the coaching? What are the different tactical aspects? So that also gives me an idea of like, what are the movements that we're talking about? How does, how is it similar to sprinting? How is it different from sprinting? Um, so, and then from there also in terms of, um, if it's not that I'm going to look it up, you know, on PubMed or just look at some time motion or just kind of get an idea of like what's going on. Right. Especially if I'm less familiar with it. So I usually always ask athletes that I work with for video, um, I often say like the more the merrier. Um, and, and I, I just kind of look through that and see based on their past history, um, and what they've told me so far, I'll always kind of look at that, see how they move. Is there anything egregious that comes out, uh, that I notice or, um, in terms of mechanics, in terms of technique, in terms of rhythm, like all of these different elements that I've, again, a lot picked up from, uh, from Stu and from Dan and, and Chidi. And, um, from there, when I meet them initially, obviously we have a conversation. What are the goals? Um, one thing that I've been working a lot on also improving at, at, at or getting better at that would be uh, just meeting the person where they're at, right? Both in terms of like, like what are your goals, Robbie? Like, what are, what are you coming to see me for? That also gives me an idea of where do I fit? Like, what's my role for you, right? And I think that uh, what I do varies a lot depending on that as well. So, um, where are you at? What do you, what do you need? Like, what do you think you need? Um, and then my assessment usually, again, will kind of depend on that. But um, if I've already seen you move, that's also why I like to do that because especially in initial sessions, it's sometimes hard one to, I, I well, I don't have the space to make you run a hundred meters or to run even 60, right. I can make you do some, like if we're talking about maximal effort, 10 meters, maybe 15 uh, especially like in the winter here, because we have like a, about 30 meters of turf. Uh, outs uh, otherwise, I can you know bring you outside and make you do some longer stuff. But that also requires more of a warm up. So I, I like to get that information before, um, and then I'll have a look at some general motions. And um, I used to do like an SFMA uh, a while ago. I've, I've kind of stopped, uh, but I will look at some of those movements, whatever is you know relevant. And uh, then I'll do my table tests usually, uh, and, and that I would say is. Uh, highly, highly influenced by, by Zach and Bill. Uh, so looking at, you know, external angle and then shoulder and hip and uh, depending on the issue, if it's more of an upper or a lower quadrant, I'm going to kind of go a bit further there too. So obviously if like it's a knee issue or, or something like that, well, I'll, you know, check the knee or check the ankle, check the foot. Um, I will sometimes look at these things, even if it's not that problem, but maybe not only like an initial session. It also depends on the expectations, right? And that's something that I've, noticed over the years with everyone who teaches a particular method, um, oftentimes people have expectations when they go see them. And that isn't necessarily the expectations that people have when they come see me. So if you have, you, you know me as like, I don't know, someone who works with track, um, you don't necessarily know me as, and my model and my approach. So if I do something really funky coming from left field, uh, I think that um, everything with regards to like understanding and buy-in gets a lot, gets affected. Um, and I think we need to like build that trust before we can do some of these interventions. 
So whereas, let's say, um, if you go see Zach, you, like you probably have a pretty good idea of what you're getting into. Like you're going to see him for this kind of like maybe general lens. You're going to be doing probably some breathing related stuff and things like that. Right. Uh, so I, I've been trying to get a bit better at meeting people where they're at in terms of expectations and then kind of bringing them towards where I think they need to go. Um, so yeah, so I'll do my table testing. And then depending again on, on the issue, I might go and, and do some further testing afterwards. So um, if someone is, let's say after a particular injury or surgery, I might throw on some moxies on there and go have a look at how they're utilizing and, and how they're delivering, you know, oxygen and blood flow to the area. So that might be just in the gym doing some movements. Uh, it might be doing uh, like a step test, uh, like uh, the, the the step test with Moxie. And that, that's something I've picked up from, well, obviously Moxie and Evan Pycon talks about it. And uh, the uh, Evolve guys. Um, Aaron Davis so, and Palacios. Yep. Yeah. yep. So, um, and uh, Brad Kozak. Um, so, yeah, I, I've been, I've been, so that, that would might be one thing that I might test, or maybe I'll go more for like output and look at some of the force play data uh, now. So, I've been mainly working with counter movement jump and some isometric stuff. Uh, so whether it's an IMTP or some of like Alex Natera's run specific ISOs. Um, so, so it, like what I will test afterwards kind of varies, but pretty much everyone will go through, like, I like to see how do you move? Like, what are your movement options? And then I'm going to kind of overlap that with how do you move when you're, uh, when you're training or when you're in the gym. So, um, and, and with the output. So if you're post-op, you know, maybe you're, I have some people that come to me quite late in a post-op session. So maybe they're like a year, a year and a half post-op, there's still some lingering issues. Uh, well, again, I'll do the same thing. So movement ability, and then looking at, depending on the issue, are you able to use that muscle properly? Sometimes the answer is no. And, and we kind of need to like step, take a bunch of steps back because you're loading it, but you're you're actually not loading it. Like you're you're avoiding to load it because you're doing too much. So we need to um, reduce the load first. Or uh, maybe I'll look at again the force plates and see what they tell me, and then I'll kind of um, address some of those areas a little bit more through exercise, through manual interventions. So sometimes that might be, you know, your hip motion isn't so great, uh, and you're still avoiding it when you're jumping. Right? We see there's you know your eccentric impulse or what have you is, is more, more asymmetrical. Lay down the plyo boxes. Let's work through your hip a little bit and let's test it again. Right. Let's see what happens now. Um, and just kind of this back and forth in an educated manner to improve whatever needs to be done. And then, okay, well that improved it. Cool. Let's find ways that you can improve that motion by yourself. Uh, and that will be a mix of um, different activities. I always try to look at things globally first. Um, and again, that is very Zach and Bill influenced. Um, but then also have some, you know, more local interventions depending on the case. Um, so if we do need to, you know, get some, some hip motion, that could be, what can you do yourself? Right. So starting with something probably a bit more static and then moving into something more dynamic as you're able to do it. Um, so that would be kind of like a general gist of it, I guess. So again, depending on, on, uh, on what you come for, I, I might have a different, role right so maybe i'm maybe you have a bunch of different things already and i'm more there to just manage certain things that you're going through so you're a weightlifter uh you have obviously a coach you have a strength coach but you have some you know ongoing issues or previous issues that are limiting your motion so 
same thing. I'll look through video. What do I see? How do you move? How do you move in general? And then how can we address these elements? Um, and then I'll give suggestions with regards to um, that too is kind of like a, a, a billism, but like, what shouldn't you do first, right? Like, are there things that are, that are a problem here? And, and that's the tricky thing when um, obviously there's interfering elements uh, with regards to people's training. I always try to limit things as little as possible. Uh, but sometimes we kind of have to go that route because something just isn't sticking or we're having a, a problem with, uh, with something. So I, I try to be as optimistic as possible in terms of like maintaining training, maintaining the plan A and, and not affecting the rest. Sometimes we kind of can't really do that. So we need to be a little bit more um, restrictive. And, uh, and, and so, and sometimes we'll, I'll, I'll do the same as what I mentioned, right? So I'll go on, whether it's on the track or in the training hall, I think in weightlifting, actually performance therapy can apply pretty well too, um, because it's a similar, you know, rest to work and you can do little interventions and kind of see what happens. Um, and, and that to me always went back to, uh, like, you know, again, the Kinevin framework complexity, you like you probe and then you like, you want to kind of see what happens and then you, you amplify or you dampen the, uh, the intervention. And uh, oftentimes I find I'm also, I, I will also go maybe where people haven't gone, uh, especially because people will come see me for like a second opinion sometimes, or something's been going on for a long time. And so, okay, well, what have you done? Um, I think one thing that I failed to mention is uh, I think the first part that I try to address is always that educational piece with regards to like, what's your understanding of what's going on? That's a very, um, pain science and David Butlerish uh, type of thing. But I think that's huge because education is important for me from a, like a behavioral standpoint, right? Um, it's not so much you understanding that hurt does not equal harm. It's like, no, you have to understand, really understand what that means because that's what's also going to lead you to uh, be comfortable maybe moving through something, even though you might feel some symptoms, right? And we still have, feel, we still hear, and especially in sport, uh, we hear a lot of that more biomechanical talk or more of this like um the classic is like you know your sacrum is out of place right we hear it all the time and i think the athlete or the individual doesn't always know what that means and i've seen it very in many many cases where people had um what you would consider catastrophic or maybe avoiding uh behaviors and beliefs because of that um and and so that's why to me, that's really important that we address that because you need to understand what's going on for you to be able to then do, you know, load um, or do the motions to restore these things. If you think that every time that you take a breath in or that you, uh, every time that you do a certain movement, something is moving out of place, well, that's obviously an issue. So um, it, it reminds me of this one case of a, of a young track athlete who, uh, again, I was consulting in that kind of um, second opinion uh, standpoint. And you know, she came to me, she was basically completely stopped. This was not, this, this was the uh, second or third time that she was basically told, you have to stop everything. You can't do anything. Uh, just, you know, no load at all. And your sacrum is out of place and so on and so forth. And um, so I had, I had her, you know, I, I saw some video of her. I saw a little bit how she was moving. She's a young athlete. So again, you know, it's kind of different from like a more mature. And, um, and then we kind of looked through, how do you move? Where do you move a lot? Where do you move little? And then we kind of addressed that locally, but we also went through some drills. I use a lot of like the mock, mock drill progression that Derek teaches. I find that very useful as a, as a movement screen, but also as a 
it's a part practice, right? So like you take elements of running and then I can address that. And it's, it's really interesting how very few athletes um, have a lot of intent while they do these type of drills. It's like, oh, it's a warm up. doesn't matter. Right. Uh, and, and I find that actually to be very useful to try to get some mechanical changes as well, because you can focus on different things. If you're doing a walking a, or even a skip, I can have you focus on, you know, pressure through the inside of your heel. You can't do that when you're sprinting like that doesn't make sense. So I, I, I will uh, often try if I can to look at the whole movement and make some changes there in terms of maybe some cueing or things like that. Um, it's through the drills, sorry, and then integrate that in higher speeds, as opposed to starting and saying like, okay, let's do a cross connect, right? Let's put your foot on the wall. And, and not to say that I don't do these things, but I think that if I'm, I, I'm sometimes able to get changes through something that's more meaningful to the athlete and obviously buying is better. And I know that they'll do it more often. Right. So uh, I did that with her. And then I saw her a second time. She had this, you know, soreness through her back. And I was like, well, you know, I think it's just muscle soreness. I think you're just really fucking sore from from like, I don't think that this is not like, you know, a, a problem. You're not injured through your whole spine. Um, so we said, hey, you're comfortable doing a few needles. Eh, she was kind of so, so comfortable. I said, OK, cool. Let's just try. Let's see how this goes. I'll never force something on someone. I find that with needling, that's often a problem. Um, and I think that gun IMS talk a lot about um, dosage and about kind of finding a what's the minimum effective dose. I find that most people that use needles kind of have the opposite uh, approach where they're just like, this thing is twitching. Let's just twitch the shit out of it. Um, so I always try to find that, again, minimum effective dose. So we did, just did a few things, um, did some manual work. Oh, okay. And, and it like just alleviated those symptoms and they haven't really come back since. So I was like, okay, cool, great. You know, that's solved. You know, let's continue to work on the rest. And then I kind of brought her through like a progression of excels. Uh, we did some short excels on the hill uh, to work a little bit on, you know, creating a little bit more output, trying to focus on maintaining certain positions still. And then at the same time as she's doing that, she's working on, again, her movement ability. So moving better through her hips. She was orienting a lot through her back, um, getting a lot of that motion through there. And, uh, and so that's kind of how we've been, you know, structuring things to get her back to, um, to being able to train properly and, and fixing a little bit of those mechanical issues at the same time. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I try to kind of blend a lot of things together. And then the other thing maybe that we spoke less about would be the whole more lifestyle aspect or recovery aspect. So with regards to, you know, talking about sleep, talking about nutrition, talking about, um, mental prep, things like that. And when I say talking about, it's not like in depth, but obviously when people are injured, there's a big mental aspect to that too. So depending on what's going on, you know, the other underlying thing would be um, from like an approach standpoint would be the uh, just everything around the person, right? Uh, so going back to what we were discussing earlier, like, you know, there's circadian health, sleep, uh, all of those elements. And so I kind of have usually maybe some broad questions initially when I start with someone with regards to like, you know, sleep quality, sleep quantity, things like that. And then I kind of see if some of these things need to be addressed. Uh, I find that those are topics that, I mean, actually going back to when we were at Altus, I remember noticing that, you know, I always thought that like elite athletes had these like very, you know, we needed to really go into like in, in detail and in depth on some of those um you know, small things that we had to address. And then I realized that a lot of them had 
not always the greatest like habits in general. Like they didn't eat well, they didn't sleep well, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. So, you know, I'll talk to them and then I'll, I'll, I'll try to find links. And this is the same as any other education that, that I'll do or trying to understand where the person is at. It's like seeing where they're at and then seeing what's relevant to them and then trying to find a way to, um, to make these topics relevant to them. I think that's the mistake that we often make, both when it comes to educating someone about pain, it's the same thing, or about any other behavior. It's that uh, we we just kind of have these canned responses in terms of like, well, sleep is important because here, da-da-da-da-da, it does this and that and that. And it's like, well, the person may, might not care, even though like rationally and logically they should, they don't. So we have to make it very relevant to them. Um, to me, that, that 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 also came a lot from like motivational interviewing um, that I had started to read about uh, probably from John Berardi back in the day and, and PN and I had done some courses here in Montreal on it. And, and to me, that's a very like undervalued aspect that I think most, everyone should know about. <clears throat> so the that that's kind of the same type of approach, right? So trying to find like you talk to me about your habits and let's see like where they fit and why is this important to you or why is this not important. And then trying to find ways to uh, slowly make this better, right? Because it's not like you can't just snap your fingers. Um, and, and it takes time, right? You want to say something? No, sorry. Um, so, yeah, you know, it, it's uh, so, so I'll address that. I'll try to see other things that we need to address in that perspective. So, obviously, it has influences on pain. We know that pain thresholds will be uh, lower if uh, sleep quality is poor. We know that. Uh, stress and cortisol has an influence on pain as well. We know so all of these things, um, and obviously they all have a, an, an impact on performance. Um, if there was something obviously that is uh, larger, uh, then I will refer out whether it's to um, you know a, a colleague and friend of mine who does mental skills uh, coaching, or uh, or may, or maybe it's a site, right? Maybe that's what they need, um, or maybe they need to go see a nutritionist, right? But I will kind of broach these topics with them. Um, very often I also see this as like planting a seed and then while they're working through everything else, obviously there, there's different thoughts that come through their mind and they might be able to link these things together. So for someone who doesn't necessarily see the influence of sleep and like why that's important, uh, I've had very often people come up to me and say like, oh, like, you know, a few sessions down the line, like how they noticed this, um, you know, this, this, uh, this link with their sleep, you know, or, or with regards to whether it's their performance or their pain or what have you. So I often try to like address these elements earlier on and then make some little changes with regards to like, you know, their routine or how they manage, you know, the time before their sleep and, uh, whether that's, you know, reducing light, uh, reducing blue light in the evening or getting more light in the morning, or, uh, whether that's around nutritional habits, whether that's around, you know, um, not, you know, social interactions and not being too aroused uh, in, in the evening, right, with regards to like uh, playing a video game, going on YouTube or things like that. And uh, and again, trying to find people where they are, because uh, I, I think I've been very uh, drastic before and and that doesn't really lead to anything uh, sustainable, at least. Um, I also have sometimes people fill in uh, charts, kind of like a daily questionnaire uh, with regards to, you know, sleep, mood, uh, muscle soreness, things like that. And, and part of it is for me to monitor and to see if there's things we need to modify. But a big part of that, again, is for the individual. I find just from the number of times that I, I've done this, most of, more often than not, people will say, like, I hadn't realized that I was always that sore. I didn't realize that I would sleep only that much, right? And so that leads them to modify things. 
as opposed to me having to tell them like, oh, five hours a night is not good. It's like, yeah, well, they probably already know that. Um, so that, that I think is a very, very important element um, that I try to um, at least educate the, the athletes that I work with on. Um, and yeah, then referring out as need be. So, yeah. Um, how did how did things go with that that young sprinter anyway? How's it's it going well. It's going yeah. well. It's ongoing. It's ongoing, but it's going well. Uh, you know, I think that. So again, looking at this from different lenses, there was definitely like this educational piece of her understanding what was going on or what wasn't going on. More importantly, like your sacrum isn't out. You're not dislocating your sacrum when you do these things. Like, yeah, you might feel some stiffness. There's some asymmetries. Yes, for sure. You're using your back a little bit more than your hips, 100%. Let's address this through these movements, right? And then at the same time, I think that mechanically, um, and again, we can we can I go on to this massive discussion. And I've been wanting to have this conversation with uh, with with Stu actually for a while with regards to uh, change of mechanics, right? Uh, she's young. Clearly, she's been having some ongoing issues. So to me, the the the, the fact of like looking at mechanics and trying to change the way that she does certain things is, is kind of like a no-brainer. Uh, there's more nuance and more, um, I think, subtlety with regards to certain other cases. Uh, but for me, whether if there's a, a performance problem or especially ongoing issues, ongoing injuries or pains, that to me usually leads me to say, well, maybe, and especially if it fits with mechanically what they're doing, uh, then I, I think that, that that to me is, is a reason to modify things. Uh, if it's one injury, hey, a one-off happens. Um, we don't need to necessarily change everything for that. We might need to change it for a certain period so that the injury can heal. Um, but uh, for, for her, she was a very like backside runner, uh, very, very stiff upper body, uh, which I think is, is something that needs to be addressed more often than not with a lot of sprinters and mid-distance runners. And even with Bobsta, actually, found that that was oftentimes an issue. But we focus so much on like below the belly button, we forget that the above also has an influence. Um, so we, we try to address kind of all of those things. So we kind of, you know, address some breathing mechanics stuff because to me, obviously, breathing mechanics, rib cage, and upper body kind of go together. So we address some of those elements. And again, part of that is also education, right? If you have a tendency to always breathe through your belly or breathe very shallow, or you just don't understand why that might matter. And, and you know, I'm not saying that like, you're breathing wrong and this is why blah, 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 blah. No, it's just like, Hey, like this strategy is fine, but we need this other strategy right now. You need to relax your arms. You need to be a bit more, you know, a bit more loose and then trying to, again, to tie this into why is this important? So, um, you know, we addressed those medical, these mechanical elements. Uh, we modified her drills. She was quite frustrated at first with that, even though it's kind of funny because again, she's, she's, she's pretty young. So I wasn't expecting that amount of frustration from her, but you know, I always bring it up as like, Hey, we're trying something new here. And then we'll see if we need to, mo to, to maintain it or if we need to modify it, if we go back to what you were doing. Um, so we, we're trying to get her to have a little bit more of like a front side uh, type of movement and for her to have a bit more control. So better motion through certain key areas, better awareness generally uh, of her body. So she's someone who, um, let's say, just having her squat or do different uh, movements, she's just like, kind of flopping up and down and like there's there's like no control it's like squat down she's like and comes back up right uh and i was like okay well slow it way down right slow it down and the way that she was squatting intuitively was also very like hingy um 
I, I think like a lot of people are told not to let their knees go past their toes, for instance. Uh, and for someone with, you know, hamstring, hip and back issues, that's a bit of a problem. So I remember I, I put her on some ramps, sorry, squat. And I was like, wait a second, like get off the ramps, like just let your knees go forward, like just, just go straight down. And I was like, wow, that squat is great. Why didn't you do that from the start? So, uh, you know, we reverted back to that. She didn't need ramps at all. She just needed like a, a different cue. And um, so, so yeah, so we're kind of doing a mix of those things. So some strengthening uh, of the area, some mechanical changes, some technical through the drills changes. And now we're intensifying it. So this week, normally she's going to start to do more, uh, more volume of these things. I like to start... And that comes from Derek, short, uh, short excels and then building it up. Um, I had this conversation with a, a, a retired sprinter uh, with regards to the, a lot of people return sprinters back with like jogs, which to me didn't really make a lot of sense, especially for her because she has this tendency to be backside and, and jogging is very much backside. So um, we kind of like, I, I'm trying to switch that over. So maybe for her to do more volume of the drills, more you know, do a bunch of A runs, right? Again, that's that's uh, uh, a very much Derek Hansen approach. Uh, and then let's go into some short excels and, and build that up. So that's kind of her, uh, the plan for her. Um, and yeah, and, and then again, it will, it will vary, right? Depending on, on, on where the person's at. Sometimes we need to hold things back more. But I find that if we're able to find, I guess it's the plan B, right? Keeping the plan B as close as possible to plan A, as as Dan would say, or as Stu would say as well. Um, so I always try to do that. So how can we still load you? How can we still do? I, I think that that's an important principle um, of like, let's keep you active. Let's keep loading things. And then at the same time, let's work on the, the rest. Unless you're so injured post-op or you have this massive issue that's been ongoing and then we need to like really strip those elements because they're interfering and then really just focus on the low intensity stuff. I'm still finding balance. I'm just trying to find like balance in, in how I approach this because it's really boring for individuals to do just that. And so I'm trying to find still a way of um, if I really believe that they need to improve their movement options and that a lot of things are interfering, how do I do this in the right way? Um, so that that's also why I start to use a little bit more of like the Moxie stuff to try to see like, is there maybe like an, Maybe there's a physiological element that's that we need to address, and maybe we can address at the same time. Or, um, like, what what else do we need to do here, and how can we keep the motivation um, high at the same time? Because I find that that that's the tricky thing. Even though people have injuries uh, that are ongoing, oftentimes, unless it's very limiting and very painful, people aren't motivated necessarily to address that fully and to be committed to that process. Um, so that's that's something I'm kind of still figuring out, you know. And are are you doing any just specific performance training, or are you always kind of more return to play? Like, is there anyone coming to you swiftly just for like physical prep? Um, physical prep, like usually it's post injury. It might sometimes be optimization of certain things, uh, and, and that's kind of where I'll have the kind of this like this parallel role to the other things that they do. So optimization in terms of like. Again, whether it's mechanics, whether it's certain particular elements of um, of what they do, they need to improve on. Um, and if I do, like the training interventions or more where it, it would be more physical prep would be, you know, mid to late stages of a rehab or after an injury 
or someone who has something that's been going on for a long time but is wants to train and and uh um or optimize or change the way that they're doing things so um oftentimes it's kind of transition periods i find so someone who's again a runner who's been doing their thing but with certain symptoms certain injuries kind of recurring and then they'll say hey you know I'm, i want to take that time to actually like i want to fix those issues right so then we'll kind of look again in that same manner okay well you know biomotor abilities like movement abilities biomotor abilities physiologically what's going on like how can we what are the pieces that we need to modify here uh so in those cases i'll have more control over the the program that they'll do um or again with with more of a rehab so whether it's you know i'm, I'm a big believer also in doing pre-operative work uh whether again like acls are a good example of that but you know pre-op through the operation and then post-op and kind of finding ways to um, again, work on different elements so that we can improve the ability as well down the line so that the person doesn't, yeah, how can we be proactive? So we know eventually we'll do change of directions. We're not there yet, but your hips don't move very well. So maybe we can address that. And, and that is a very um, lateralizations and regressions kind of perspective from Charlie Weingroff or from, again, a plan B. Like how can we change the directions uh, a few months after an ACL is hip mobility and, you know, maybe some lateral type of movements like in a, but, but that are staying static. And then we kind of build that into COD. Um, and then messing a little bit more with more sensory motor aspects as well. Uh, you know, visual um, dual tasks and things like that. Cause I think that that's an element that with regards to return to play, we're, we're missing a little bit of, and there's more and more research on that. Um, so I'm, I've been kind of dabbling with that a little bit more as well. Um, so, yeah, a typical session for that for me would usually be, um, again, trying to address some of those movement elements, then looking at either linear speed or multidirectional work, and then looking at, you know, some lifting. And that will also be sometimes dictated by what I see, whether that's moxie maybe a little bit earlier on in terms of utilization, uh, or whether that's maybe some more force play data in terms of like, where do we notice the issue? Do you need to work on, um, on just your ability to load the leg or do we need to work on your ability to be able to decelerate quickly, for instance, uh, which is something I think we're missing out on as well. And, uh, you know, Matt talks a lot about that. Stu talks a lot about that too. Um, right. So, so yeah, sure. We can do soft landings, but um, Alex and Tara also has some stuff on that, right. Let's work on your ability to absorb loads fast and, and like, significant loads um let's let's try to to build you up as much as we can um and as a last point because I'm, I'm starting to ramble a bit i think the the aspect of really pushing the ceiling a little bit more which again is more of a physical prep concept is really important to me because otherwise i think that in physio and in rehab we have a tendency to we want to make sure everything feels fine the person is doing right all right but then we'll send them off to you and say well they haven't done much with me so i'll just leave them to like it's almost like we leave them to get injured with whoever they go after. Like, so, so I don't mind pushing things more and I won't, I will never obviously try to injure someone that I work with, but I would much rather that we're going through a logical progression of things. If something happens, I'm with them. One, I know that it was, it was a logical progression. So if something happens, it won't be that big, but it also gives me an idea to like, okay, well, this is something we need to work on. Like we need to, we need to unpack this and, and develop this quality. And, and so I try to push the individuals that I work with in a, in a logical way, 
so that they don't have to realize that they're not fit when they go back to their team or to their physical prep or whoever. Um, and, and I guess part of that is also kind of like a, no, I, I have done acute to chronic workload ratios with individuals before. I don't do them that much anymore. Um, I do it sometimes if I plan like a return to running or like a long distance running perspective. Um, but I will have the same kind of mentality in my head. I, I need to prepare them. They need to be ready for more than what they need to go back to. Uh, so to be shielded from that. And uh, so, so I try to do that with them if I can. So uh, like if, if you were to summarize kind of your model, definitely to start with like what it sounded like to me to start was you essentially just do a very detailed needs analysis, both of the sport that the person's coming to you and then sort of a gap analysis of where this person is in relation to what their demands of the sport is. And then obviously with regards to their injury, it reminds me of the chapter David Joyce had in one of his books where he's like, with regards to assessment, he's like, we have this general one that's kind of of the sport the athlete plays and a specific one for that individual and their injury history and their sort of kind of stereotype of movement. Um, and so, yeah, kind of like, you know, there's this needs analysis of the sport. Okay, she's a sprinter. Here are the demands. Here's where she's at in terms of like a sort of gap analysis of where she is from, you know, if you want to say a biomotor standpoint, the biomechanical standpoint, a bioenergetic standpoint, and then kind of comparing that to where she needs to be and where she needs to go. And obviously then there's the whole sort of rehab or sort of optimization piece that you have in there as well, which I suppose you could kind of umbrella that underneath biomechanics, if you like, to a certain degree. But, uh, and then... Like then regards to the KPIs, like again, I suppose maybe there could be general ones to the sport and then more specific ones then for that individual and what they're looking to achieve. Now you're just kind of hitting those as you go through the journey with that person. Yeah, yeah. And also trying to like like figure out what those KPIs are in a way, right? Like I think um, there are some general things, but then there's also, um, I, like I, I remember hearing, you know, Dan and she talked about KPIs years ago and I was like, I get it. This is really cool, but like, I don't really understand it. Right. And <laughs> so uh, that, that, that's something that I'm also kind of working on in terms of saying like, okay, well, and we can apply this to Zach and Bill's model too. Right. So um, what, what should, you know, sometimes uh, talk to Bill and Bill's like, Oh, like your KPIs are straight leg raise. I'm like, okay, kind of get that. But like, I wouldn't, I, I, I'd like, it wouldn't have come from my mind. Right. So, so I'm still, I'm getting better at it. Uh, in terms of like figuring out like what are maybe the uh, you know the, the the coffee cups as he would say, but uh, like the big thing that stands out. So looking at it from that perspective, and then you have again depending on where we are, I think there's different KPIs that become important, and and one of those things will be again the the, the motivation, the understanding, the the buy-in, uh, which is you know again we can uh, um, it, it's a very like Bartholomew type of thing to look at, right? Like conscious coaching, like what are the uh, how can we create again this link with the individual uh, motivation interviewing does the same thing yeah but that. it's 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 100% true like I mean I don't know if you remember oh you can remind me his name was it was it Strickland Mark Strickland was that his name yes, yes yeah yes, yeah yes, at, yes, at yes. Altus and like I uh, can just I remember his presentation about like you know relationship athlete coach relationship and just I remember the big thing he just kept beating into her head was trust 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 yeah. he's like success between either a coach in a team or a coach in an individual or, or any sort of leader in an organization is trust. He's like, if they don't trust you, there's no buy-in. And he's like, the best fucking laid out plan in the world will go nowhere if there's no trust there. So I can, I always just remember, like, and it, and it was one of those things where like, it's kind of like, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, people, oh, I know I have to sleep eight hours and you're like, oh yeah, sleep's important. Sleep's important. But it was kind of like that one day where I was like, you know, if he'd said to me, oh, trust is important between people or between coach and athlete, I was like, yeah, of course, that's obvious. But like, he just was like, no, I'm telling you, listen to me and i was like 
right? This is a big deal, like because it's hundred percent true. Like if if they don't trust in you, the process, what you're essentially selling them, then like it's you're putting a cart before a horse if you think you can go anywhere after that. And what I realize again is that going back to expectations of the person when they come to see you, um, and, and it's funny, you know, because I, I remember having this debate with uh, with individuals I was working with way back when, because they would say like, well, people expect back in the first clinic I was working on, people expect manual therapy. And I said, well, did you ever ask them? Because like some of them don't, some of them have like no clue why they're here. And some of them actually do expect exercise. Um, but I sometimes... I, 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 you know, I still, I think I need to ask that question more often. Like I will sometimes ask it, but sometimes I feel like I shy away from it and I should, because I think that I, I have like, I assume what people expect. And that's also where um, they might have trust. But if you, you kind of mismatch what they're seeking to get out of you, that's where like you sometimes go in a certain direction with your interventions that is, doesn't really fit with what the person wants. Um, it again might come from left field. So I think it affects that trust process a bit, but um, yeah, definitely. I think that the, again, the, the, the buy-in, the conversations and, and you know, it's kind of like the, the old adage of like, uh, you know, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Um, I think I do that also through a lot of communication with individuals. And again, I like to, I've always given exercise to people to do and, and I've always noticed that execution is a problem. So I'll, you know, I'll have people film themselves and like send me a video, let me see how it looks and I'll give them feedback. If there's something going on, like I'm relatively available, which creates a problem with like setting boundaries sometimes and having, you know, um, periods of time, like it's not, not necessarily work-life balance, but something of the sort, I don't know what the right term would be, but um, I, I do think that that's very helpful. And especially with these complex cases, they do need this kind of ongoing um, communication and being able to adjust things. Uh, to, to me, again, going back to complexity and like you need to adjust things. I can't predict how things will be. And so uh, there will be a lot of this back and forth with people that I work with. Um, yeah. Yeah. One, one good thing I was certain I, I wasn't being ignorant looking at my uh, my iPad here while you're talking, but because I was just pulling this up because I was at, one of david gray's workshops back in may and he he did have this one well, he had lots of good slides but just one really good thing he had was you'll see it like he has it's like the slide that says phase one phase two phase three and he's like phase one and he has like what you're doing what you tell your clients phase two what you're doing what you tell your clients and his whole thing was like he's like okay your clients might necessarily need to know like what you, like the really in-depth detail of what you're doing that you understand but they still need you to tell them what the like what what to expect in this sort in in this moment right now and at the, at this mm-hmm. stage of the rehab so his whole thing was like clarity like they want communication and clarity and when they get that if it's it's just education piece really but like mm-hmm. i thought i just really liked the way david put that it's like here's what you're doing and you know we're doing that but here's what you tell the client because they need that reassurance and that clarity and again that clarity then builds trust and confidence in you then as a practitioner yeah yeah. And then again, adapting to the person, right? Some people want to know more. Some people want to know less. And again, with, um, I do think that with everything that's accessible to us nowadays, in terms of social media, YouTube, like everything that you can find, people are, have a lot of things that they can consume. I think that generally they're, those that are interested in that are more educated on these things. And I think that also comes with like the problems that we see are maybe a little bit more complex because like for most regular things, people can mostly take care of them through YouTube. Like you can just, you can, you can find so much stuff. So 
Um, and, and sometimes that's a problem, right? Because it's create, it creates noise. Uh, you know, a number of times I have people coming in, you want like this thing and you're like, well, that's, you think you want that, but that's not what you need. Like, and, and so right, it, it reminds me of this, um, it was a Scotty Bush who was saying that, I forget. He was saying, uh, you can use whatever model you want. The, the person doesn't need to know that. So like, you don't need to necessarily go in depth, like you said, on this. And um, I, I think we just need to find the right balance because if I do, again, you come see me for an e-issue and I have these, I'm making you do like a, a pullover or a chop or a whatever, you might say like, well, why the hell am I doing that? And I think the general uh, explanation of like, we want to work on, you know, how things move. And that, I, I think that's not enough for a lot of people. So we need to go a little bit more in depth with regards to, again, tying things in uh, or showing a change. Um, so with regards to like, obviously that, that is very useful when we can, but that not, doesn't always happen as fast as we would like. So like, yeah. I think like, you know, like in terms of like empathy, being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes and listen, I've been as guilty as this as anyone else in terms of not being great at this, but like, if you really think about like just your average person coming off the street with an ankle or a knee, and then you just lie them on their back, start doing breeding drills. Like they must be like, what the fuck is going on here? Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't, <laughs> oh yes. do you know, like you, you, oh, you yes, could 100% yeah. get that. You know what I mean? They're like, yeah. it's my knee. What am I doing lying in this 1990? And they wouldn't even have smiled my position. They're like, why am I on my back doing this breeding drill? Like, well, obviously yeah. without the education piece of why this might be relevant yeah and then and, and, you know sometimes we want things more than than, than they do and, and again i think part of this is education part again it goes back to the same thing where are they at like to me if like thinking about this if i have someone that comes up to me and especially like someone who's you know an athlete or, or whoever like you, you want to optimize this process but people aren't always ready to do these things like i have very very good athletes who just you you can see that they're just not ready for like a change you know, stages of change perspective to do what you were telling them to do, even though like you would think they are, uh, but, but they're not. <laughs> so again, it's kind of finding like, um, you know, the motivations of the individual. And I think that that takes time, like just to, to learn about the person and know, you know, what's their motivation, how does their mind work. And I imagine that, you know, over time and uh, with experience, you get better at that, but I still think there's a piece of like time and just exposure to the individual uh, to be able to notice that. And, you know, it, it just makes me think about one last little thing that I think is a pretty important piece that I always try to consider. It's um, looking at the intervention and, or whatever we do and, and looking at all the, everything, all the outcomes that it leads to. So we always have like, we do something to get a certain outcome, but the outcome that we're seeking is not the only outcome of that intervention. Right. Um, Bill will talk about that in terms of secondary consequences uh, when it comes to um, in pain. We'll often talk about that, too, in pain education. Right. With regards to like, well, you gave this biomechanical explanation because you wanted to explain to your patient what's going on. But the result might have been um, now they're avoiding movement. Right. So just kind of looking at that. And, and I started to train weightlifting about two years ago. And um, my ex coach now, uh, JP, he would always uh, mention this as well. The outcome, you want to improve a squat. Okay, but what's the influence of that? Like, what will it do to like, okay, well, you're putting more emphasis on the squat, so you're doing less of the technical lifts. What are the motivational influence of that? What's the, you know, overall load influence of that? So just kind of trying to look at things a bit more globally so that we can maybe avoid going somewhere where we don't want to go. Um, so, and, and that goes back down to, again, the, the uh, trust, the buy-in, finding the right interventions at the right time. 100%. So, uh, are you ready for the big question? I think so. <laughs> I thought about them anyways. Um, do you want the dinner one or the one week one? 
I think the one week one makes more sense to me. Okay. Now. Okay. So we'll yeah. give you that. So okay, you have you have one week to learn from five individuals. You can be up, up to five. Yeah, up to five. Okay. <laughs> uh who who would you pick and by the way, these are like five separate one weeks. So it's not like it's not like you have five individuals okay. and you're and you're with them all in one week. Like you have you have you, you can you have one week one individual and you have five of these weeks. So who would you pick? Okay. So you, so you have five individuals that you can learn from these can be individuals dead or alive. And they actually they can be real or fictitious characters too because oh, you might because okay. you know you could be like oh, i wouldn't mind spending a week with batman but um so who would these five individuals be and why give me the why too now, now you just gave even more like you know uh you, you opened it up even more um i think so i really like the concept of um the generalists right like the 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 polymath and all that and i think um when i was thinking about that question uh, there's there's a few names that came up with regards to like like da vinci or like tesla or like newton you know like people like that um if we can go for like anyone i think my curiosity like i i pick i don't know i don't have a name for that individual but uh, you know, Library of Alexandria that like burned down like during like Bronze Age or whatever. Like that, yeah, you know, they were... yeah, yeah. They lost all that so, like gold and stuff for the medi- for right? the medieval period. Like, like, you'd like to get hold of that? I I would like to get a hold of like whoever like the head librarian was. Like like him, I would like him to to talk about and and you know like I, I also because I was thinking about the dinner question too. I was like, it would be great to just have these people around the table and just listen. You know, like yes, ask questions, but just see like what happens when they start talking and like. Have all these, but but I think that that's kind of what I would would aim I would aim for. So the Alexandrian librarian, uh, Da Vinci, Tesla, Newton, um, like those type of individuals. Maybe Marcus Aurelius. Like I find him kind of cool too. Like I'm not as, um, you know, like intense on like Stoic philosophy as some might be, but I do find that like he had like an interesting perspective on things from what I've read from him. Um, he would it be like hilarious? If, would it be hilarious if you met him and he goes, "Oh, I didn't write any of that. That's all. <laughs> it's all ghost. It's all ghost written." <laughs> So that was the first thing that I was wondering when you when you asked that question. I was like, I don't know these people. Maybe they're just a bad bad time to have around dinner table. Yeah, you know? like maybe, maybe they're absolute phonies. Imagine they were exactly. phonies. Like, imagine he met Newton. He goes, Yeah, I didn't call any of those three laws. So, so that that's I stole, it, right? I, I like, stole them off Tom down the pub one Monday night. <laughs> so yeah, so so that's why I didn't know at first. I was like, man, I would just have like I'd have you over, I'd have Federico and whatnot. I know you guys are good people, but yeah. So if if let's say these people, we assume that they are good people and that they are a good time having around. I I, I would that those I think are the individuals I would talk to. Why? Um, because I think well, they 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 had a very creative mind. They dabbled in a lot of different spheres as well, and they were able to I think find a way to merge these different. Um, these different domains and also reflect around around these domains and and they had you know when you look at like the laws of Newton or the stuff that he did when at like a really young age like these guys had pretty cool minds I think uh, same thing for Tesla and and just to kind of get an idea of like what was going on in their heads um, obviously the the librarian it would be like I just want to know like you know what are the, the craziest things he he learned what are the things that they kept secret what are they like i don't know they just have so many questions in terms of like just history and like all the stuff that was lost when this you know library burned down so um i get this like funny yeah. image in my head of like being transported back to that librarian and you bring a photocopier and then you get there and it's like <laughs> but then you get there and go dude there's no electricity like shit 
<laughs> well, you know, one of the cool stories about it is that they would actually, so which, whatever uh, ship would go through the port of Alexandria, they would take all the scrolls and all the books. They would make copies of them. They would give back the copies. So they would keep the originals. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Yeah. So we got like uh, six minutes before we cut time here. So is there, I suppose, anyone listening, where can they reach out to you or find out more, more from you if they want to connect? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I guess, I guess through social media, like Jordan Khrushchev, I don't think I have, I think on Instagram, I'm Jordan.Khrushchev. I don't post a lot of things. I, I have like, you know, some story stuff like that, but, um, I like to do a little bit more of that making this actually list. I, I've been wanting to make a bit of a list of influences or mentors for a long time. And, and it was interesting to kind of go through that. Um, probably forgot some as well, but um through social media facebook if people want to email me you know jordankr at hotmail.com yeah i'll stick all yeah, your whatever. contacts yeah. in, the, in the show notes. Uh, so i love to you. talk about this stuff uh ideally in person ideally with you but i like to talk about these things for with anyone if you so. can get him on a hike he's a good man to go for a hike with oh yeah for sure you are you're the same so yeah. um yeah that was great that was great and uh you have to give claire a show before you go the woman oh, the, yeah. wo- the woman who made the, the internship possible Oh, for sure. And, and, you know, like it's, it's, again, it's, it might be a cheesy thing to say, but like, she, she's like, she's been a huge influence on me too, right? We're not at all in the same fields, but way back when, just to make it very, very short, when I was working at the gym, uh, Nautilus, she was actually one of the only people that would read the articles that I would bring in. Like I would print out things from like Dave Tate and, and like, she would read them. And, and, and so, I mean, my, my wife's a lawyer, like, like she would just read them out of interest. She was working at the reception and she was like, oh, this is so cool. Right. And it's also very interesting to talk with her because she's very much like a, a naive expert uh, in the sense of like she deals with risk management with like, you know, how do we how do we like, and, and like I always tell her, like, I, I, I really like her her brain. Um, she I think she has a really sharp mind. So, uh, yeah, no, she's huge influence as well and definitely allowed me to have done these things. Um, so, yeah, definitely. Shout cool. out to Claire. Cool, man. So, guys. Another great episode. I really hope you enjoyed it and do reach out to Jordan if any more sort of if there's areas or conversations you'd like to uh you'd like to get involved with, with him with because he's a, he's a fantastic mind and a wealth of knowledge. And I said at the very start of the show a hidden gem. So dude, I appreciate you. Appreciate your friendship. And I'll say goodbye Same to you offline. Man. Okay, yeah. for everyone else, until next time, take care, be well, and stay strong. Mm-hmm.